Good morning. It is great to be with you this morning at Summerside. As Pastor Mark mentioned, I do have somewhat of a connection with Summerside, but actually with Westminster Hope. Any of you old West Westminster Hope people left here from those days? Okay. They were in the early service, but not, wow, all new people. That's great. I did attend here back in the 80s when I was a student at London Baptist Bible College. Yes, you're thinking I can't be that old. I, they, they let toddlers in at that day to Bible college. But uh, we uh, came here on weekdays. I was traveling on the weekends and actually helped to start the first Awana Club here. I don't know if you, you probably don't have Awana anymore, but that was a thing. Okay, so back then we just got it started, and uh, that was when the church was just beginning to outreach into the neighborhood around here as these housings were coming into this area, and we're able to see a lot of unsafe families come out and join the church as a result of the Iwana Club that was started way back when. So, And my brother, many of you know Scott is my brother, and so that means Chris is my nephew in the back there. So Chris, you can say hi. <laughs> and uh, so it's good to be back and, and reconnect again with, with Summerside this morning. Uh, I am now back in Canada. We originally started out in Canada, but we've been gone for a long time. Uh, more, of course, we started out in, um, as missionaries with ABWE, which stands for Cross Borders for World Evangelism. And we were appointed back in 91 to the Soviet Union. Believe it or not, that was still a country back then. And I remember going down into the basement where they, we broke off for our Sunday school class in the building, which is now underneath, buried in rubble underneath the road, I think, missionaries. But that was where we had Sunday school. And there was a poster downstairs in the basement that somebody had put up, and it was published by uh, George Evins, who was a persecuted Baptist pastor in the Soviet Union. He was exchanged for some Russian spies, and he was brought over by Jimmy Carter back in the 70s, and then he would travel, and he came to London actually quite often. Two of his daughters were in our Bible college, and so he would speak in our chapel, and, and he had published this poster, and it had faces of all of these um, Baptist church members. Most of them were pastors that were in prison because of their faith, uh, in prison because of religious persecution in the Soviet Union. And I remember being struck by that and beginning to pray for the persecuted church, even as a Bible college student, not knowing that shortly after that, God would tug on our hearts and lead us eventually to join ABWE as missionaries to the Soviet Union. So the connections continue because in 91 made the, our first survey trip, um, to Ukraine. At that time, it was still under the Soviet flag. It hadn't got its independence yet. And my travel companion was a wonderful dear friend by the name of Mel Cuthbert. So that name may be familiar to some of you as well. Pastor Mark's father and, and uh, stepmother were on that trip with me and, and were heavily invested in the ministry in those early days. And so we have seen a lot of change over the years. Of course, 93, 91, Ukraine gained its independence. 93, our family moved there with our two babies. And we began our ministry of theological education and church planting. And we're there for over 22 years until we left in 2016 after the first war with Russia started and a couple years before that. And then we were invited to go down to Harrisburg to be in the international headquarters. And then they decided, kind of like a, a hockey thing, we did a swap with Minna for John. I don't know which team got the better end of it, but uh, he went down there and we came up here to take his position. So really just moved here in the summer back to London. 
and so we're still relatively new back to Canada and uh, so are excited to be serving ABWE because what ABWE does and if you could uh, begin the presentation ABWE Canada is really a global family of ministries what we mean by that is that there are five ministries and soon to be more than that of kind of independent ministries with their own philosophy but all of them are pointing towards one thing we are here to help Canadian churches to help them fulfill the Great Commission locally and globally so we use all of these different five ministries that we currently have to be able to help you as a church and so that's really what what we're here for and the reason that we came back to Canada was to help Canadian churches and that's where our heart and passion really lies so we have a number of different ministries that have been developed the first one is ABWE Go which is our sending branch of ABWE so yes we do still send missionaries we have close to 1,000 long-term missionaries serving in 84 countries around the world so I think there's probably some kind of opportunity there for every one of you. Uh, there's just many different ministries that we're involved in, from medical to education to pastoring to um, all, all women's centers, to, uh, theological education, many, many different areas that we use as outlets to see the Great Commission fulfilled around the world. Uh, and, and it goes right up to short-term trips as well. So we do still um, facilitate that for churches who want to send trips to the field. And we have many opportunities. We'd love to talk about what some of those are. The next ministry that we have is Live Global. Uh, Live Global focuses on global partnerships. By that, we mean non-North Americans. So they could be global partners in Asia or in Africa or in different countries around the world. And then we come alongside of them and help churches to connect with those international partners to encourage and bless their ministry so that they can be equipped to do more for the Lord overseas on the field. And then the next ministry that we have is Every Ethne, which focuses right here in North America. Because we've learned that you can cross cultures in Canada without ever having to cross the border, without ever getting a passport. There are multiple people groups right here in Canada right now that are still unreached and have not had access to the gospel in their own language in a way that they can understand it and some of those people are your neighbors right here in London uh, I'm just blown away by some of the statistics as I've looked at the latest census results that have come out of the 20 I believe it was the 21 or 22 Canadian census in the greater Toronto area there's a population of over 6 million people of those people, 53%, over half, were born outside of Canada, our brand new Canadians. And we certainly see that reflected more and more here in the city of London and all across this country from, from coast to coast. And in the city of Toronto, according to the Joshua Project, there are 26 people groups who are both unreached and unengaged with the gospel. The largest number of any city in the world and the most ethnically diverse city in the world. And so we have incredible opportunities now to go to the unreached people groups of this world without ever having to get a passport, just driving down the 401. And just amazing the opportunities that God's brought to us. And so with every ethne, we do have training that we provide for churches, seminars. We have seminars on how to 
love and engage Muslim people, how to love and engage Hindus, LGBTQ community, and many other people groups that uh, we need to learn how to love and engage. Okay, the next ministry that we have is Launch Point. So this is short-term trips with long-term impact. So again, we are hoping to mobilize different teams and individuals to go overseas, even if it's just for a week or two. You probably understand that short-term trips, the greatest benefit is not for the recipients of the trip. It's more for the person who goes. And we understand that. And so we've developed some orientations, some training, journaling, different things, and then follow-up debriefs to help get the maximum impact from the trip so that you can take some of the lessons you learn and convert it back to your ministry here at Summerside. And then the final ministry is one that I absolutely love, and this is our focus this year in ABW Canada, to introduce churches to the good soil ministry. I think this is one of the best-kept secrets in ABW, this ministry which um, is there to be able to motivate, train, and equip the body of Christ in Canada to be able to um, fulfill the Great Commission by doing evangelism and discipleship with people around us and with a heavy emphasis on evangelism. So I know when I was younger, growing up, often our church's method, and I did this, we had a bus ministry, and I would go door-to-door, and sometimes we would hand out gospel tracts, and we'd expect that that's all that a person needed to understand the gospel and make a decision to make a faith response in Jesus. What we're learning in today's Canada is that most people have never been to Sunday school, Most people have never heard these terms before, or if they have, they've understand them in a completely different way. So what we do with Good Soil is we go back and hand you tools and training so that people can truly understand the essential gospel message. Who is God, man, sin, death, Christ, faith, life, and all of those words that we take for granted, those of us who've grown up in the church. But today people have no idea who Jesus is. They don't know what sin is. They don't know what the cross meant or their significance or who God is. They come with their own worldview that clouds out the truth. And so we try to help you understand, peel away those outside layers and get to the core of what a person believes. And then how do you help them understand, truly understand the essentials of the gospel? And we do that using a chronological approach of telling the stories of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So it's a very easy method to be able to walk through that and use very visual, it's very storytelling, and be able to understand the basic concepts starting in the Old Testament so that they really can understand the gospel and make a faith response in him. So if you would like training in that, we provide that as well. We have over 200 resources in over 40 languages, and uh, there's just a whole lot of stuff there. So you could just explore all day and see what some of the tools are. Um, we have adaptations for different worldviews. We have adaptations for different age groups and uh, could be used anywhere from children to, to ESL or many other contexts. So we'd love to be able to help you with that as well. As I already mentioned, we did serve in Ukraine for over 22 years, and uh, obviously our hearts are torn by what is happening today with the war in Ukraine. The numbers are staggering, certainly. Uh, Read this week that over 20 million Ukrainians have been displaced from their homes. It's almost half the country. The death toll currently stands at the latest estimate of approximately one quarter million people have lost their lives in this war, a quarter of a million people. 
That's a lot of families whose lives have been torn apart and destroyed by this war. Not to mention the unspeakable suffering, the atrocities that have been committed in many of these places, the buildings that have been destroyed, uh, infrastructure torn apart, uh, people going through a winter with minimal heat and electricity, if any, and water. War is a terrible thing. And as we think about the news in Ukraine, and I certainly pray for an end to the war, it's very easy, it's very tempting as believers even who know God to ask the question, where is God in this terrible suffering and destruction that's going on? And perhaps there's someone here who's going through a time of crisis, maybe in your family, maybe as an individual. You're going through some very difficult days right now. And it would be easy and tempting for you to ask the same question, wouldn't it? Where is God in the midst of my trials? Where is God in the midst of my suffering? Is he even there? Does he even care? You say the words and repeat the words, God is good all the time, all the time God is good, but it seems rather shallow for where you are right now at this stage in life. You know the verse by memory probably, 1 Thessalonians 5:18. give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And you think, how can I give thanks in my circumstance? For what can I give thanks How can we even focus on God right now? And certainly it requires a deep faith. I know you just had that message last Sunday from Hebrews chapter 11, where we understand the need for a faith that can see the unseen, that can still have a faith in that which we cannot see, that which we cannot touch. And that can be a challenge sometimes, can't it, in the Christian life, as we see times where it seems like God is silent in our lives. Or when we look at the news or we see the tragedy that just happened in Turkey or in Ukraine or in other countries around the world. It would be so easy to believe in God if we could just see him stepping in and working, just wiping out all of the enemy or or fixing all the buildings that were destroyed or healing the disease it's it's racking our body or providing us financially, wouldn't, wouldn't that be easy to have faith? I mean, think back to the Old Testament. Wouldn't you love to be back in those days? I mean, you see the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of cloud and fire. You can just see God's presence right there so clearly and so physically. And then when they were hungry, God sent manna from heaven. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, just have dinner land on your plate. and just It was so obvious that God was working there. To see the defeat of Jericho and then as they cross the the river and other military conquests. And yet, you know, they still didn't believe. The Israelites still lacked faith in God, even though they saw all of those things. Well, the story that we're going to look at from the Old Testament today is, is not that kind of story. Okay, I'm telling you right now, it's not a story where you see God at work clearly and visibly. It's a story of God quietly working behind the scenes in a quiet way that isn't always seen or felt. And what makes the story even more interesting, that it involves the main character who is actually not an Israelite, but a Gentile by the name of Ruth. But really, it's not so much a story of Ruth, but it's a story of her mother-in-law, Naomi. So if you would turn with me, and you can grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you to the book of Ruth, 
And we're going to stay in there uh, reading from the book of Ruth. And I'm just going to walk you through this story that I know is familiar to many of you. But I just want to highlight some of the key elements of the story here from Ruth here. Because I think there are some very important lessons for us today that we can learn from this. So let's set the stage for this by turning to chapter 1 and the first five verses. I'm going to read those for you. So we see the story here. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife, her name was Naomi, and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So they went to a neighboring country because they heard that there was food there. Where they were, there was a famine. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other was named Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. Pretty tough. There's Naomi. She's far away from home, from her home country. She's way off in Moab. Her husband dies. She's now a widow, has to provide. But she has two sons, and then they died. They both died. And she's left here with two daughters-in-law that she has to somehow care for as a widow. Now, this story is going to look a lot like kind of a roller coaster ride. Do we have any roller coaster fans here? In the early service, we had three. Anybody like those big roller coasters? Like, okay, you guys got more. This is the daring crowd here. Okay, so you guys go to Canada's Wonderland. and um, So you know, like, some of those rides, they go up and down, all back and forth, and makes you dizzy just thinking about it, right? And that's kind of what this story is like. You're going to be way up at the top, and then it's going to be way down at the bottom, So there's going to be some high points and then there's going to be some low points. And just when things look like they couldn't get any lower, all of a sudden it's going to go way up high again and things are going to go great until something else happens and then it goes terrible. So it's kind of like this back and forth throughout the whole book here. That's really what this this book looks like here. So she's left with her two daughters-in-law and then one of them in verse 15 leaves her. so that was the the first daughter-in-law. Naomi says to her daughter Ruth, look, your sister-in-law, verse 15, is going back to her people and to her gods. Because they came from a kind of a pagan background country. And so she went back to her gods and she left Naomi. So now Naomi's left almost everyone. She's left with one daughter-in-law, Ruth. She's the only one that's left. And... So Ruth does decide to stay. And in verse 16, Ruth says those famous words, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your people, my God. So now we have Naomi, who's left with one daughter-in-law. And that's it. That's all she has left. She's lost her home. She, she's lost her husband. She's left her sons. And now she's in a foreign country. And things seem like it couldn't get any worse. And yet it does. It gets worse. And so how did Naomi respond in this situation? Did she say, oh, I know God's behind this. I know God's working. I know that God loves me. I know that God's caring for me. No, she doesn't do that. In fact, Naomi became bitter. 
She became bitter at God. It's interesting that we see a book of the Bible once again where a character looks at God and says, why do you hate me? Where are you, God? My life is terrible. I followed you, I believed in you, and this is what you do to me. How do we know that? Well, she she says that to her neighbors in verses 20 and 21. Sorry, let's go back to chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. She said to her neighbors, they said, can this be Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi. She told them, call call me Mara. I want a new name. Mara. Do you know what that word means? Bitter. You can see it in your notes in your Bible there. She says, call me bitter because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Not only is she herself bitter, but she said, God has dealt bitterly with me. God is out to get me. She said, I went away full to Moab, but the Lord has brought me back to Israel as they've returned empty. She says, why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. It's not only that she's saying God isn't there. She's saying God did this to me. God is out to get me. Have you ever had days where you maybe felt like that or know people that talk like that? Like, where where is God in the war in Ukraine? Is like God just out to get Ukraine and do as much harm as he can against them? Like, like, what is he doing? How can God allow this to happen? Not only does God allow it, it seems like he's actually doing this, that this is from his hand. And maybe you feel that this morning. Why did God bring cancer into my life? Why is God doing that to me? Why did God take my friends away? Why did God divide my family? Why did God cause me to lose my job? Or you could go on and on and begin to become bitter in your heart towards God. And so this book is not an easy book to read because it's very raw. It shows the emotions of a woman who felt like she had lost everything. So they hear that the famine ends, so they go back to Israel, her and her daughter-in-law. And now there's a problem. They have to find a way to feed themselves. And so there's only one way that Naomi could think of. She said to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, you know, I'm getting older. I need you to go out and see if you can find some grain. It happened to be the season for barley and wheat at that time. And so she sent off Ruth to glean. Now, what does that mean to glean? There was actually an an Old Testament law there that if you owned land and as you were harvesting, you're supposed to only harvest like you can you can harvest most of it. But you're supposed to like not go all the way to the edges, kind of like leave a little bit of leftovers, um, just like we would leave some scraps for the dog or something after a meal. Well, in this case, they say leave some scraps on the end so that the poor people can come and gather them. So that that's a way that you can care for the poor by let them have some. But most Israelites in that day actually didn't do that. <laughs> they actually didn't like people coming and grabbing their grain from them. Even though they were supposed to, they weren't so generous actually. And, and not only that, but sometimes the workers would actually torment the poor people that were coming to gather the grain. They would pick on them. Or worse, if it was a single lady, they could even abuse them in some way. And so this was actually a very dangerous proposal that Naomi was giving to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. She says, I want you to go and just find a field somewhere and just start gathering grain from the edges. Now, this was risky. I mean, she could have been assaulted. She could have been uh, uh, verbally abused. Uh, She could have been kicked out. 
And so this was kind of a, a daring step here. And so it just so happens that she landed upon a field that was owned by a man who happened to be God-fearing. This was written as if it were an exception rather than the rule. And so this man actually was very kind to her. And we see this in chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, he said to Ruth, watch the field where the men are harvesting. He sees this young girl there, this young woman. And he says, follow along after the other woman. I've told my men not to lay a hand on you. Whenever you're thirsty, I want you to go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. So he, I, I've instructed my men, like, not only can you have all the grain you want, but they're going to leave you some water so you can help yourselves anytime you want. A little later in verse 15, uh, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves. Don't reprimand her. Don't, don't verbally abuse her. And then after verse 22, Ruth came back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, you wouldn't believe this. I came upon this field. And look at all this stuff I got. I mean, it was right there. They left it for me. They gave me water. They were so kind to me. And Naomi said to her, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the woman who worked for him, this, this guy, because in someone else's field, you might have been harmed. And so we're now at the top of our roller coaster ride, and things look like they're really going well. Like, like this is good news. Think, think good things are happening here. Could it be that God is actually intervening and God is actually caring for them? Well, there's a problem. Verse 23, we read that the harvest was nearing an end. <laughs> now what? It was going well for a while there. For a few months, they had all the food they needed day by day. And then the food ran out. It was the end of the, of the harvest time. So now we're getting back down to the bottom. And they always thinking, now what are we going to do? The grain is gone. We have no jobs. We have no assets. What are we going to do? And so Ruth went for the last time to the field of Boaz. And as she's gleaning, something very interesting happened. Chapter 3, verse 15. Boaz called to her and he, he said to her, bring me the shawl that you're wearing. Bring me the sh She handed out the, hall, the, the shawl. He says, hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley, put the bundle on her, and then he went back to town. Ruth came back to her mother-in-law, and Naomi asked, how'd it go, my daughter? Is this it? Are we going to basically die of starvation now? And she told her everything that Boaz had done for her. And then he added, oh, and he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So she went back with all of this food, and it was enough to keep them going through the season where there was no grain god answered or did he <laughs> things are going well so now they have food again so we're back up at the top and then now we reach a risky moment ruth is uh, sorry naomi the mother-in-law she goes on to google and she starts doing a search to see who this boaz guy is like any good mother would do right her mother-in-law She's Facebooking him and trying to find him on social media. She's saying, who is this guy? You know, is he, is he legit? Is he safe? And wonder of wonders, it turns out that she finds out that this guy, Boaz, is actually a distant relative of theirs, of her deceased husband. What are the odds of that? Out of all the fields that she could have gone to, this Boaz guy actually ends up being a relative. Now, why is that significant here? For those of us who don't understand well the Old Testament law, there was actually a law there where if you lose your husband, then the next closest relative was supposed to redeem you. In other words, enter into a marriage contract with you so that there would be a descendant 
that would receive the inheritance of the deceased husband. That was the law of the kinsman redeemer is what it was called in the Old Testament. Kinsman, a relative and redeemer, he who would purchase for you your inheritance so that that would be carried down along that line, along the genealogy. So that would carry on. So Naomi, like a good mother-in-law, is thinking, here's an idea. (laughs) This guy happens to be a relative. I wonder, would he be willing to be your kinsman redeemer? And so there was this kind of ceremony they were supposed to go through where she was supposed to uncover his feet and then he was supposed to cover her feet. And that was a sign that they were going to enter into this contractual marriage relationship. So I don't know, some of you are maybe without grandchildren. You're hoping your kids will get married someday. You might want to try something like this. I don't know. It might work in the 21st century. We could try it. So Naomi thought, okay, we're going to. So she said to Ruth, Ruth, I want you to go out. And I want you to to go and try this. Now, this was very risky. Why was it risky? Because, again, back in those days, that was in the days of the judges, where everyone did that which was right in their own eyes, and there weren't a lot of Israelites who were actually observing the law. And so it was highly unlikely that a relative would actually do this. Um, and so this was a little bit risky because she could, in a sense, she's going to him and in the middle of the night, she's proposing to this guy who she just met that year and saying, would you marry me? And would you carry on my descendants? Now that he could have scolded her. He could have turned her away. He could have rejected her, made a mockery of her. So this was a little bit of, of a risky venture here, as you can imagine. And so we see that she actually does that in chapter 3, and we won't read all of the verses, but uh, verses 8 and 9, she does what Naomi said, and then in the middle of the night, something startled the man, Boaz, he turned, and there was a woman lying at the bed, at his feet, at the foot of his bed. And he says, who are you? And he didn't recognize her, it was dark, he had just woken up, was groggy, she said, I'm your servant Ruth. You know that young woman who's been gleaning after your servants in the field? And she said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer, a kinsman redeemer for our family. Wow, (laughs) that's a lot to handle in the middle of the night when you just get woken up with the sound of something at your feet. You thought, I am your kinsman redeemer? And this is a very risky moment. What's going to happen? You know, is this going to go good again? Is it going to go bad? It ends up going really good. Because he ends up agreeing and says, okay, I can do that. Uh, He doesn't kick her out. He doesn't disgrace her. Verse 10 says, instead, he said, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all that you ask. And the people of my town will know that you're a woman of noble character. I will marry you. Things look great, don't they? So at this point, we're at the top of our roller coaster. God's working. Everything's going great. We've got a fairy tale ending, but not yet. Because then something else happens. We see here in verse 12, as he begins to think about it and he does his research, he says, yes, it's true. I am a kinsman redeemer of our family. I am a relative, but there is another who's more closely related than I am. Oh. Just when things were looking so good, we thought we had our fairy tale ending. And he says, actually, I'm not your kinsman redeemer. There's another guy. It's not me. You're going to have to go to him. Now, what are the odds that that guy is going to agree as quickly as Boaz did? So they found the guy. They went to the 
the gates of the city and you go on and, and read that story and in chapter four um this nearest kinsman redeemer let's hope that he says no because we want to get ruth together with boaz right they look like a great couple he's going to be very nice to her so she goes to this other guy and he says sure yeah i'll marry you <sighs> now what happens right so he agrees it's not going to be a good situation he's kind of a greedy businessman he sees this as a business venture like i get to buy their land i could expand my business operation here yeah ruth comes along with the deal but that's okay i'll just send her off to pasture and i'll just make money off of her land until he's reminded that oh by the way you have to marry her <laughs> and and all the dis, all the children that are born they're going to inherit her money and not yeah they're going to inherit like everything so you get nothing from that farm he thought well, what kind of a business deal is that forget it and so he goes to this ceremony and he says okay i renounce my kinsman redeemer role i will not i refuse to take on ruth that'll just be a burden to me so again now we're back up again finally it works out ruth and boaz get married and they live happily ever after right in fact we we see that they end up getting married they had a son and that son became the grandfather of king david and becomes of the line of of the davidic covenant and eventually the messiah jesus comes as one of their descendants of the marriage of ruth and boaz why do i share this story in the context of faith we talked about the war in ukraine which is a terrible situation but i wonder could god still be working behind the scenes even when we don't always see it could he be working behind the scenes just as he did in the story of ruth in fact there is actually one verse i want to go back to in ruth chapter 2 verse 3 i think this is really a pivotal verse and actually there's a phrase in here that's very pivotal in this story it gives us a clue for what the whole point of this story of the book of ruth is in chapter 2 verse 3 this is at the point where naomi is sending ruth out to a field and i said she just happened to land on the field of of boaz look at the the phrase here in in verse 3 So she went out she entered a field and she began to glean behind the harvesters as it turned out and there's our phrase as it turned out she was working in a field belonging to Boaz who was her kins who became her kinsman redeemer now that phrase here is translated as it turned out now if you were to read the the original hebrew that the author wrote this in it's even stronger he actually used like a double word here and the best equivalent that i can come up with in english is her chance chanced upon the field of boaz as if all of this was just by chance but he didn't just say she happened just by chance to fall upon the field of boaz she says it just so happened by coincidence by chance that she chanced upon this field of boaz in other words the author is kind of winking as he's writing these words like it just so happened that she landed in the field of boaz was this just a coincidence was this just chance what do you think in other words it's the author wants to make it crystal clear that there is no chance involved in this this was all god did this even though he didn't use the name god it's there and it's obvious and the whole point of the book of ruth is that even when we think things can't get any worse 
even when we don't see God working and he is silent, we know 100% that God is there in that situation and that God is at work behind the scenes in a way that we don't always see and that we can't always know. And so as we look at Ukraine and we pray for God to end the war and we think, where is God in the midst of this tragedy? Or or you name any tragedy in our own lives or in in our own country. The answer is that we know 100% that God is still there and God is still working behind the scenes in ways that we may never understand. And I can tell you today that God is at work in Ukraine in a way that we have never seen in our 22 years there. Today, God is working in the country of Ukraine. We have seen a spiritual revival taking place in Ukraine, such as we have never seen before. And remember that we've been observing ministry in Ukraine since it even became a country. I remember back in 91 when people were reaching out their arms to grab Bibles, the curiosity, the openness, the, the, the crusades and the stadiums being filled with people to hear the gospel. What is happening in today is an even greater openness to the gospel than we saw back in 91. One church pastor said to a teammate of mine, he says, you know, I've been planning churches in Ukraine since the late 80s. I've never had more fun than I'm having right now. (laughs) This is so easy. We're sharing the gospel and people are asking us more questions. They're asking us about Christianity and they're coming to Christ in unprecedented numbers. I just heard from a church in Kherson. I preached there at one time. We had a Bible school there, a church of about 300 people, about the size of this church. And they had lost almost all their members. Being in Kherson, that was an area that was taken over by the the Russians. And so they were down to just 60 church members in a church that had previously had 300. Most of them fled and they went to the west. And today they are having to go to double services because their auditorium is full to flowing and people are waiting outside to get in to hear the story of hope in Jesus Christ. We are hearing of churches where they're having baptisms every week. I could go on and on and share you all the stories of what God's doing in Ukraine, and I wish I could, but I just think of one pastor. He's a partner of ours that's in the, the Donbass area of the Donetsk Oblast. He was behind in the, in the occupied zone. But, and most of his church members had left. His, a lot of his neighbors had left, but there were some that had still stayed. They didn't want to leave their homes. And so he stayed until one morning there was a knock on his door. There were two policemen said, come with us to the station. Don't worry, we'll bring you back right after. And they took him down to the station. As soon as he got in the gate, they put a hood over his head, took him to the interrogation room, and he was brutally tortured for 48 hours. He was left for dead and unconscious on the ground. And eventually someone took mercy on him and put him in a, in a hospital right beside the police station. The Ukrainians liberated the town. He was, uh, he was taken to Germany and there he went through several months of recovery as he had faced severe injuries from, from his abuse. And then he recently gave an interview. And I listened to this interview and the interviewer said to him, why did you stay? Why would you stay when you knew that they were killing and kidnapping and and torturing pastors, especially Baptist pastors, Protestant pastors? And he said, because when I stand up on Sunday morning and look out and my auditorium is absolutely filled with unbelievers, they're looking at me eye to eye because they know that this is the only place where they're going to find hope. And he says, I needed to stay. 
and I needed to share the only hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And many have responded. He said, that's why I, I stayed and that's why I would stay today if I could. There are believers risking their lives today in Ukraine to be able to share the story of hope with people that desperately need to hear it. And God is at work in amazing ways. Praise the Lord. This is what God's doing over and over again. Are you in a situation today that seems hopeless? And everything just seems to be going wrong. We may not see God at work. We may never know how God is working. But I can assure you that he is always there in the midst of our difficulties. And he is always working behind the scenes in a way that only God can do. And we know that nothing can happen to us that escapes God's notice or that catches him unawares. For he sees all things. And we may never know the end of the story of what God's doing and how God is going to use the trials in our lives until we enter into eternity. I don't even know if we'll know then. But I do know this, that God is at work today. Quietly, sometimes. Sometimes not so quietly. But God is still working behind the scenes. And we can go to him with confidence and prayer as we pray to him and boldly give thanks to God for being with us and for what he wants to do in our lives through this. In spite of our circumstances, wherever we might be this morning, seeing the unseen, seeing the God story behind everything that's happening in our lives, even when we don't know what it is. Can we have that kind of faith? Can we have that kind of trust in God? I admit when the war started in Ukraine, my faith was somewhat weak. And I wondered, God, I don't know how you're going to use this. I don't know how you can use, turn a war around and use it for good, for your purposes. But he's allowed us who believe in Jesus Christ to see that happen. Haven't we seen that this morning? Haven't we seen that in dozens and hundreds of churches across the country where churches don't even have to invite an unbeliever to come to church? They have to turn them away because there's just no room. Can you imagine being in that kind of a situation as a church here in London? That would be wonderful. And yet it took a war for that to happen. I used to pray that God would end the war. And now I wonder, <laughs> how do I pray? <laughs> I want to, I'm still praying for the war to end. But God, if this is what it takes to see countless Ukrainians spend an eternity with Jesus Christ, should we pray for that to end, to stop? Or do we just see the God story in a very terrible situation. Would you allow me to pray with you this morning before we close in song? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can boldly come before the throne, your throne and we can come to you just as we are. We are people who lack faith. At times we're people who are broken. Like Naomi, we say sometimes that you have dealt bitterly with us. And Father, forgive us for our lack of faith. We know that you do not intend evil upon your people. Sometimes, yes, you allow things to happen that we don't like. Sometimes you allow things that are terrible to happen in this world. And yet we know that you are still ever present and that you are the same God today as you were yesterday and the day before. You are still the God who performs miracles. You are still the God that touches hearts. You are the God that stirs people up to worship you. And so, Father, I just pray that for if there's anyone here this morning who's going through a time of, 
of trials, a time of difficulty, that you would grow their faith in you. Father, we know you're working. We know you are producing something far more wonderful. We don't know what that is. We may not know what that is at any point. And yet, Father, we place place our faith in you, and we thank you that you are a good God all the time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.